This is like the hidden truth of product-led growth as expressed in open source. If you can get people enthusiastic about the thing that you're building, it's not merely the case that they transition from quote-unquote users to quote-unquote customers, but they translate from users into participants. The idea with WebAssembly was what if we could compile libraries to WebAssembly and then call from one WebAssembly binary into another and then have it return. So this unlocks polyglot programming where I can grab a Rust library and as long as it compiles to WebAssembly, I can use it from my Python on code or whatever. That's been a struggle for all of the history of computer science. Welcome to The Craft. I'm Patrick Herman, investor at Picos Capital, and I'm very excited to have a true open source software veteran joining as my guest on today's third episode of my podcast, The Craft, where I talk with pioneers of the developer infrastructure frontier. Matt Butcher is not only the co-inventor of Helm, the de facto open source package manager for Kubernetes, but also the co-founder and CEO of his DevTool startup called Fermion, which helps developers around the world to spin up serverless cloud applications using the power of WebAssembly. With Fermion, Matt and his co-founder Radu are building one of the most promising open source native ventures in the US and have raised more than 30 million of venture capital funding from the likes of Insight Partners and Amplify Partners. Both Matt and Radu are true dev pioneers themselves and have worked on some of the big projects of the container and Kubernetes ecosystem during their careers. If you have ever worked with Kubernetes as a developer yourself, you probably might have worked with or even complained about one of the tools Matt and Radu have built during their careers. Without further ado, let's dive right in. So thanks so much again. Super happy to have you. And tell me, where, where do I reach you in the world? Uh, what's the latest on your side? I am based in Boulder, Colorado, right at the foothills of the, the Rocky Mountains. Getting ready. I'm all, all packed up and ready to go to Chicago, where uh, KubeCon is happening next week. Uh, I lived in Chicago for uh, for about a decade and, and some. And so for me, this is kind of a chance to go back and visit old haunts and eat at some of my favorite restaurants. I'm really looking forward to it, in addition to getting to go to KubeCon as well. Cool. Yeah, KubeCon is big, right? Especially for you. We're with, you know, yeah. your your experience in the Kubernetes yeah. world. I think everyone knows you, but we'll come to that in a second. To start, I think it's always nice for the listeners and the audience, right, to, I guess, understand the story of the people uh, I interview here in, in the craft. So would love to get the story of you. One, how did you end up in the open source software world on the one hand? And then second, what made you become a founder, right? What made yeah. you become uh, going on this uh, journey uh, and starting Fermion, which is the company you're running uh, actively today. So I think some insights on that would be amazing. Sure. I got started in open source. I really fortunately uh, for me, I got started in open source in my very first job, right when the term open source had just been coined in like 1995 uh, as sort of like a summer internship. <laughs> and so I've spent really my whole career working on open source projects, taking be, be, taking advantage of the open source work other people have done. And it has just been sort of like an invaluable uh, part of my career. I think because I started seeing uh, early on in my career, I have always seen the value of working together collectively, particularly on low level things where uh, if we all agree that we're going to use this socket library or this compiler or whatnot, then suddenly compatibility is much easier. We raise the raise the floor for developers. And so over my career, I've worked on just a tremendous number of different open source projects and in different communities. I've worked in 
the Drupal community for a long time, in the OpenStack community for a long time, uh, you know, in the Kubernetes ecosystem for a long time. And at each one of those phases, you know, learned a lot about what it means to be part of a community, what it, in some cases, what it learns to be a leader in a community. When we were, uh, so I was working at a company called Deus that was very much an open source mm-hmm. oriented company. We were building, you know, a, a platform as a service on top of Kubernetes. As part of that, we needed a package manager. And so we invented Helm, uh, which is the package currently kind of like the default package manager for Kubernetes. That attracted the attention of Microsoft, who acquired Deus. And it was at Microsoft. Microsoft was sort of like the crucible that that led to the formation of Fermion, right? We had a really tight-knit team. We were all doing open source development, all upstream that was getting pushed up into Cloud Native Foundation, CNCF. Uh, And it was just, it was a fantastic time and just so much happening then. But there were, we started hitting on some problems that we wanted to solve in a unique and interesting way that were sort of outside the boundaries of what Microsoft really wanted us to be doing. And so about 10 of us, you know, we sat down, you know, late in the evening one night and said, what if we just, you know, went and started up a startup? I had never considered being a CEO. You know, that was not anywhere in my trajectory of things that I wanted to do. I came out of that meeting and went to a friend of mine who was a multi-time C- CEO and had coffee with him. And I said, I don't, I don't think I can do this. You know, what do we, how do I find somebody who can be a CEO for me? And, and he's got, and he said, no, 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 you, you have what it takes to do this. I, you just don't realize that, you know, what it is, is capturing that vision you know, aligning a bunch of people around it and then just pushing forward and making sure you hire the right people. And I came out of that meeting. I remember walking out of the coffee shop and my hands were shaking and I'm like, is this because I'm excited, scared, or just had way too many coffees while I was talking with Tim? <laughs> so it turns out here now later, you know, so I went back, Radu and I uh, started the company with me as the CEO. Radu was the CTO. Not long after we contracted Tim, the CEO who had first gotten me going on this. And Tim is now the COO of Fermion. And and so so I like to say that at least if nothing else, I took his advice to heart and hired really good people because because <laughs> I brought him on and he is fantastic. But that's really kind of how we got started. So that was November 2022. It is in fact Quick. It was our two-year birthday, just a day. Oh wow! So we're just on time. Two-year birthday, and I mean it's uh, it's inspiring, right? Especially for all the people who are more on the engineering and technical side of things that mm-hmm. you can actually become the CEO even, and you don't need to hire the CEO from the get-go, uh, which is super nice. And I. I also heard uh, between the lines, there is a story also how Radu and you met, right? The two uh, uh, co-founders, <laughs> yeah. right? Because he was, but please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, one of the maintainers on a certain open source project, which is interesting, right? Because it shows the true value yeah. of open source because yeah. you can collaborate and innovation can uh, come and result out of it, right? So would love to get the first story uh, within this massive Microsoft company. How did you meet the co-founder? I mean, this is such a Microsoft story too, because so I was I was working in Deus Labs, the, the name of the group inside of Microsoft. And most of us, all but one of us at that point, were people from, all but two of us, were people from Deus. And, the, and there were a couple of Microsoft people on that team as well. But we were, we were working on several different projects and we noticed a couple of things. That first of all, some, some guy kept committing changes to our code <laughs> and the same yeah. some guy was doing some really interesting things on a couple of different projects that we were watching. And at some point, Ralph Squalachi, and uh, who is the, the head of PM for that team, he and I were uh, co-leads of the team. He said, you know, we, we, we got to find this Radu guy. You, where do you suppose? We think he's probably in Romania based on the name. So we're like Twitter right. stalking him and trying to, you know, reading his GitHub profile, trying to figure out who he worked for and where he's from. And we hit that moment where, where Ralph pings me and says, yeah, Radu actually works for Microsoft. 
And I said, what? And he said, yeah, he's in the Microsoft Bucharest office. So we reached out to him and and basically Radu started joining team meetings at just unofficially at the beginning. And then ultimately we got him moved over from his existing team at Microsoft to our team. And the thing about Radu, and I can brag about him because he's not here listening, right? He is the kind of person who is who has that sort of visionary gift where, where they can mm-hmm. see, they get an idea that's far out in the future. And he works very collaboratively. So this isn't like Radu dropping an, an idea bomb on anybody. It's really Radu saying, okay, so what if, you know, we went this way, here's the vision for way out in the future. Here are some steps we could take to get there. And so when we started talking about founding a company, it was like, Radu is obviously the person who's going to be the right CTO for a role like this, which left me in the CEO role, which I wasn't that happy about until I had that conversation with Tim. But uh, it's just awesome. He's he's a unique individual. And I still cannot believe that in all of the Microsoft-y internal ways of connecting, we ended up running into him via Twitter and GitHub. Which is uh, a testament to open source, right? And uh, yeah. uh, kind of yeah, the yeah. tremendous power of this. What was the reason for Fermion? And you can uh, obviously give a quick one-liner pitch on what Fermion actually does for, for the people out there who don't know uh, it yeah. yet, but will use it very quickly after you pitch it, I assume. Why did you decide to go the open source native route in a sense, right? You have spin the open source framework to to work with it, right? And build serverless applications based on the WebAssembly movement. Why open source first? Was it always, you know, if you build a company, there will be an open source component or what was the thinking process there in the very early days of Fermion? So at Fermion, we're, we're building the next wave of cloud computing. So we're very much focused on this cloud computing idea and, and WebAssembly to us is the appropriate runtime for kind of this next wave of cloud computing. And we could talk about that or, or I can send you to links on our website, but the open source part of that question was actually one of those things where it, it didn't occur to me till later that I had just sort of by default assumed that we would do open source because it's, you know, like like we said at the beginning, right? It's just been so much a core part of my career, core part of my the way I've done development. I think my whole team at Microsoft was that way too. Radu, obviously, same way. But there, there's got to be an answer beyond that, right? Why would we right. why would we deploy spin as open source? Why and there is some stuff that we at Fermion have that is not open open source, we, we worked hard to kind of distinguish between the two. I mean, if you go for the classics, if I may, you know, faster, quicker innovation cycles, quicker iterations, you build it for the community, if you build it for the devs who are using it in the end and who are promoting it also in their enterprises, yeah. what's what's on top or do those hold true? Oh yeah, that, those things are very true. And and also because of the kind of, the value proposition of WebAssembly is very particular, right? That uh-huh. uh, we can, all languages can compile to WebAssembly and then WebAssembly can run just about anywhere. Well, the only way you can get all languages to compile to WebAssembly is to get everybody in all these different disparate language communities to cooperate, right? So in right. a sense, standards and open source are fundamental to making WebAssembly itself successful. And when we when we started working on Spin, you know, we said, well, you know, of course there is the option for us to try and build a closed source thing on top of it. But for developers, if you're building a developer tool and and you and it's open source, then like you said, you see this snowball effect where people start contributing and then the product gets better and more people start contributing. And for a development tool in a language ecosystem, I think it's imperative. I don't think we could have ever made it work any other way. And the point there, which is interesting, and I, I would also love to get your view on is you know, you do have so many open source projects out there. You do have so many engineers who want to, you know, you who have this vision, who have the great role models out there, which are open source massive companies. What makes you succeed in a sense of how do you build this community from the get go? Like, how do you foster this momentum in a sense? I uh, would love to learn and also for the listeners learn from your experiences in all the various successes you had, if you may call it, what works, what not. 
We had, so with the Helm project, that was the first time I ever tried to formulate how communities were successful. Because I've been in many, many communities that were successful. I've been in some that were not. And I've been in some really peculiar ones. Like I, I, I wrote the HTML5 parser for PHP. Libraries downloaded millions of times, and yet some total of maybe seven or eight people have ever contributed to it because all you're really doing is implementing a specification. So there's no actual boundary pushing happening there, right? It's like, did we implement the spec and are there bugs? And that's about all there is to it. And when I was comparing that with Helm, which I, I don't know if you have ever observed the Helm community, but they are just, you have developers who are all in on working on Helm. You have operations teams and platform engineers who are all yep. in on the chart development. And, and you end up having this huge, very complicated ecosystem. And we looked back on this about a year and a half into Helm and said, how did this work? Why did it work this way? And we developed this model that we call the circles model to sort of explain how open source projects seem to mm. start gain momentum and then sustain themselves. And so the idea is at the very beginning, you have a small number of people, you know, might be two, might be four, might be eight, you know, small number of people who are just trying to explain to the world, here's our idea for a thing. So you're focused entirely on building your proof of concept, which I'll call POC. So you're working on your POC and this is not the time to start community building, right? Because you don't have anything to community build around. So you're all kind of facing inward in a little circle working together. And it's the communication with each other, the sharing the vision, sharing the architecture, and then sharing the code that gets you from zero code to POC. And at some point you get to this point where you're saying, okay, we've got a thing. It's useful a little bit. Now we've got to get some people to try it out and give us feedback. And so the way we visualize this was you're a circle of people facing inward. And then at some point, you all kind of stand up and turn around and face outward and say, hey, everybody, we've got a thing. And, you know, in these early days, I really do feel like it's pretty much imperative that everybody on that core team starts to participate in what I would call like the evangelism phase, right? Where you're starting to right. tell people, we built a thing. Here's my blog post. I'm tweeting about it. I'm posting on LinkedIn. I'm probably annoying my friends because I won't shut up about right. it. But it's how you kind of get that initial traction. And then so at some point, you start to gather in a community of people around you. And some of them, you know, if, if your project is a good project, you will get people in there who are very gung-ho about it, who are very enthusiastic about it. And, and at some point you realize you've sort of formed a second concentric ring, a second circle around the inner circle of people who have become enthusiasts and and power and then power users. And then you this amazing thing happens. And when you see this happen, I really believe this is the first sign of success for an open source project. You see those people start to help others and start to bring other people in. So again, we've got this mental visualization of first the inner group is facing inward, then they turn and they face outward and you get a, a circle of people who are facing toward them, right? So you've got kind of this target sort of shape. At some point, some of those people turn around and start facing outward. And at that point, then you've built, you're, you've started to build this this target shape or this onion shape. And some people turn back inward and your inner circle starts working on the next version of the thing. And other people are now your first concentric ring starts turning outward. Uh, you know, people shift around. I, for example, am in the outer ring on Helm now and not in the inner ring, even though I started the project, yeah. right? Yeah. Because uh, my time is better spent being able to articulate things to people because I can't, you know, my, my coding level is not what it used to be. And so you kind of people move around in those rings, but you start building up concentric rings with 
you know, inner, then a, then an outer one, then you grow another ring and then another ring. And, and then they sort of, each one sort of serves a function and you end up with sort of like core developers. Then you end up with sort of like the, uh, the evangelists and then power users. And then, and at each level, the more interchange you can get between the rings, the better. So we like to use that as a model for, uh, how we think about success. And as soon as you start seeing those rings forming and then people sort of playing multiple roles where they come in as users and they turn into advocates and so on, that I think is the sign that things are starting to take off. Have you seen, I mean, you've been in the open source software world for two decades, roughly, right? Have you seen this change or what, yeah, what kind of like change over time, right? Because nowadays every company is a software company. Every company yeah. uses open source <laughs> project. Is there a way that those rings just get quicker built and faster in how they grow or what's the, I guess, momentum also potentially as advice, right? Like why yeah. should you consider now to contribute to projects or start even an open source project? I It is definitely changed. I think, you know, the first open source project I remember contributing to was a, was a web mail package called Squirrel Mail. And Squirrel Mail, there was no, there's no source code control that was visible to regular users like me. And so my very first contribution to them was like, I wrote a pa wrote a, wrote a patch, generated a patch file, emailed it to someone, waited a couple days. They emailed me back that they were thankful that I had done that and that it was going to make, you know, make it's uh, my two line patch made it in. It was so exciting. It was my first ever open source contribution, but it was slow. And there was always definitely a, a distinction between the inner ring and the next ring out. Mm -hmm. and, and it was very hard to cross from the outer ring to the inner ring. Um, there's a lot of time involved in building those relationships. And, and then IRC started to gain traction and you saw sort of people, inner, inner people hung out on the IRC servers. You know, fast forward to GitHub, GitHub changed it all, right? Because we had this great tool for collaborating and now we've got multiple great tools for collaborating. And then I think honestly, like, Slack and Discord have sort of broken down the the technical barriers to becoming sort of part of an open source community via chat. IRC was yes. very terse and difficult to use. You know, Slack is great. Uh, we use Discord now. Discord is great for community engagement. And because it's a fun and comfortable place to be and you can be kind of silly in places and the, the environment sets it up so that you can have that kind of interaction with users where... You're not always serious all the time. Also, it's easy to drop in code samples and links and images and all of that. And it just creates a sort of virtual environment that seems very uh, amenable to streamlined exchange of communication. Yeah. And almost always we see people come in from like a an issue or a tweet or something like that, join Discord, have great conversations, and then start to get involved in code. So we very much do see this kind of chat being a vehicle for getting people engaged at a deeper level. And before we jump a little more to the, you know, WebAssembly and server serverless mm -hmm. side of things, where obviously it's it's your even more home turf nowadays do you see because you mentioned it quite nicely right it's a lot of enablement on the open source on the community part right fostering mm. communication fostering uh, shipping together product and, and lines of code do you see over the next 10 years if you think open source software as a concept do you think this will change significantly also you could think about hey you do have now agents in place right which could help mm -hmm. work on issues. You do have different things. You could even have a world without GitHub, which is just, you know, working on uh, on other layers. What is your outlook, you know, on this community and collaboration mode? Will it stay in the way it is today or what's ahead? Yeah, I mean, not to jump the shark, but machine learning and AI <laughs> is, is likely to have an impact here. And I'm curious to see how, you know, in a way... 
with chatbots answering technical questions and with uh, LLMs being able to produce material that's sort of very specific to your particular use case, I, I, I do actually worry that some of the organic community building that we do now, right? Well, actually, let me just give you an example and then we'll talk about how cool. I challenge that, right? Like the easiest way to get engaged is to say, drop into a chat and say, hey, I have this problem. Can anybody help me? Chatbot, if it's the first thing that answers you, may get your question answered, but doesn't help bring you into the community in any way, shape, or form. Likewise, from my perspective, you know, in, in Spin, if I've got chatbots basically mediating with all of my users on my behalf, my incentive to become involved goes down. And that so on both ends, you know, that kind of thing will present a challenge. And, you know, I, I'm not the kind of person who's like, oh, and so consequently, open source is going to die off and go away. No, we'll figure out different ways to engage. But the question right now is, what are those going to look like? How is that going to um, how is that going to shape up? We all really do want the human connection, right? We want, we like the AI bots because they can answer our question right away and we don't have to wait for somebody, but we like the human interaction because we're humans and we like talking to other humans and we like making personal connections. So I, I do think there is a change coming. I have no idea what it is, but I see oh, yeah. already see the need for that change to come. And, and probably if I were not laser focused on WebAssembly, I would lose sleep over going, what is the next phase going to look like? I do think AI and ML is going to be one of the challenges that challenges the way we work as community. And perfect segue, you mentioned already the elephant in the room, uh, WebAssembly, obviously, right? Yeah. Uh, and I mean... Uh, I do believe it's hot off the press, uh, so kind of the, the 2.0 version of yep. Spin, right? Yep. Uh, the open source framework for you guys at Fermion. What's the, I guess, why are you so excited about WebAssembly, right? As this runtime language and, you know, what's yeah. the, the magic behind your Spin open source uh, framework? And why are you so convinced that because if you found a company, you want to do it for 10, 15, 20 years, right? Uh -huh. Why are you so yep. bullish on uh, on the movement? I, I mean, I'm really excited to get to talk about this because we've been, this is the, the big secret that we've been keeping for a long time. And now today, you know, with the release of Spin 2.0, <laughs> we can finally talk about it. You know, for the last couple of years, we have told about many of the different value propositions of WebAssembly, right? It's a it's a portable format. It run, You can build yep. it on Windows, running on an Intel machine, compile it once and have it running on ARM, on Mac OS or Linux, on, you know, an exotic architecture, whatever, right? It is a... It is a really powerful abstraction layer. It's secure by default. That's why we like using it on the cloud because we've got this kind of capabilities-based sandboxing model. So it has a lot of virtues in and of itself. But it wasn't actually, none of those things were actually the first thing that attracted us to WebAssembly. The first thing that attracted us to WebAssembly was this hidden potential that at the time, not a lot of people had noticed, which was that there was probably a way to build a model in which uh, you could compile multiple WebAssembly binaries and then have them talk together. Mm -hmm. And that was very attractive to us. And I'll get into that a little bit as we go, but I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. pause there and sort of explain what the big deal is right now. So that was an inkling. That was a glimmer in our eyes, glimmer in the eyes of some engineers at Fastly and in Mozilla and a couple other places. And we all together were working on what at the time was just WASI, WebAssembly yeah. System Interface, that was very much focused on a small set of problems, but it started expanding. And the more we all talked together, the more we got enthusiastic, sort of mutually enthused each other that we could build something really cool. We needed some streams, we needed some low-level IO primitives, we needed some, but ultimately what we wanted was this ability to build components. And so we used the very, very boring name, the WebAssembly component model to describe this thing. Here's how it works. Say you are writing a piece of code that needs maybe, I don't know, let's go with a URL parser. 
And mm-hmm. so when I, as a developer, I'm doing that, what I tend to do is I import, I go and download a URL parser library from, say, I'm in JavaScript NPM or in Go, uh, you know, the GoDepth repository, whatever, right? And I'm pulling in this library and I'm using it from my code. Then I go and try and pull in another library and there doesn't happen to be one implemented in my language. And I look over and go, oh, well, there's one in the Rust ecosystem, but I can't do anything with it. I'm going to have to write my own library. We were looking at that kind of use case and going, there is a lot of inefficiency in this system. We are asking every language community to rebuild the same functionality. And for standards, this is really bad, right? Because that's where incompatibilities happen. But also you ended up, you know, even looking at the way like MVC frameworks evolved. We, we had Rails and then we had Django. Why? Because we yeah. need one for Ruby and one for one for Python. So the idea with the WebAssembly component model was what if we could compile libraries to WebAssembly and then call from one, one WebAssembly binary into another and then have it return? In other words... Uh, what if we could create a bunch of little secure sandboxes, each one running each library in its own little runtime, but use them as if they were libraries written in the same language? So this unlocks two major things right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. The first one is actual polyglot programming, where I can grab a Rust library, and as long as it compiles to WebAssembly, I can use it from my Python code or my TypeScript code or whatever. That's been a struggle for all of the history of computer science. To be able to do polyglot in any kind of reasonable way has always involved going to just absolute extreme measures, and suddenly it's like, nope, it's just a feature of the way a WebAssembly runtime runs. And each time a new language uh, you know, can compile to WebAssembly and do the component thing, suddenly you've unlocked that entire language ecosystem into your WebAssembly world, right? So you know, the, the examples that we dropped out there today show using Python from Rust, Rust from Python, you know, just basically being able to import and use libraries across language borders. That's cool. But there's a second part of this that to me, the first time I realized this was like, whoa, this is something we legitimately have never been (laughs) able to do before. And that is that if you're running each of these modules in its own sandbox, then you can begin to apply security rules and configuration to each library. So for example, uh, say you got a YAML parser, right? YAML parsers, read a file, parse it into an object and return it. We download YAML parsers all over the place and we never read the code and we have no idea what they're doing. And we've seen this happen in some libraries in the past where a nefarious user takes it over and something bad happens or something happens and a vulnerability arises. And, you know, all these cases where for some reason, a particular library goes from the de facto position of trust to a position of not trusting it anymore, right? If you can turn on and off, you know, network access, file access, uh, everything like that at the at the sandboxing layer for just the YAML parser, then suddenly we can apply a very different external trust model to all of these modules. So if you're talking about, you know, like coming EU legislation and things like that, where we need to have an increased amount of accountability for how secure our code is. Being able to say, actually, I can guarantee you that this YAML parser never goes out to the internet and gets anything at all because I turned off its network access. The rest of the app, yeah, it's got its network access the way it needs. So with component model, we end up with two huge boons uh, that we have not really had in any environment in the the past. You know, sort of like this increased uh, security posture that allows us to think differently about how we create applications and secure them. And then this polyglot thing where... We'll be able to use libraries from different languages um, and, and do it in such a way that it's actually easy and kind of fun to do. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot. Uh, I know, right? Super, <laughs> excited, super excited to to see the release and also see the, the first people interacting with it. Me too. Maybe on that one, because in the current world, right, you have so many things which developers should care about, right? 
Uh, so many new tools are being pushed into the market. Uh, the way how they collaborate will be changed to some extent. A GitHub, mm -hmm. uh, GitHub Copilot is all around. How can you or how will you stick out in a sense of, you know, that exactly what you pitched just now to, to the listeners, yep. that this is like people need to be educated, right? It's again about open source, how to communicate the, the message, how to build the community. Because you mentioned, you know, the different waves of cloud, right? Why yeah. is this the, yeah. the one which is very essential and how will it this change the way developers interact and work? I mean, this is the perfect question to pull together basically all the threads we've talked about, except for when I lived in Chicago. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, open source is going to be really foundational for this, right? That's why we've done it all with W3. And, and, and when I say we here, it's not just Fermion, right? It's Fermion working with Fastly and Mozilla and Single Store and a whole bunch of different companies to all work on this specification for components because yeah. we want them to be shareable. So in this case, you know, open source sort of lifts the floor, right? By standardizing and releasing open source reference implementations and working with open source language communities, then we're making this generally available, which means it just sort of percolates into the developer ecosystem. Instead of having to shout from a megaphone, everybody look at me, we're really just saying we're, we're, we're involved in so many communities that everybody's just going to notice, oh, this is a new feature of how you can use Python. Oh, you know, here's some, here's another platform that supports WebAssembly components. So that helps, right? And this is why WebAssembly can be used as, I hesitate to say it this way, but it is honest, right? Open source can be used as a marketing vehicle in the sense that it can help you tell your story. But then, and then the community part plays into this too, right? Because the more vibrant your community is and the more ownership people in the community feel and the more involvement they feel and the more connection they feel, the more likely they are to tell other people about it, to bring it into their workplace or, or the applications they're responsible for building. And consequently, you know, this is like sort of like the, the hidden truth of product-led growth as expressed in open source, right? Is yeah. that if you can get people enthusiastic about the thing that you're building, it's not merely the case that they, be, that they transition from quote-unquote users to quote-unquote customers, which is the sort of PLG way of expressing it, but they translate from, from users into participants, right? Where they are actively bringing your ideas out into, out into the world and helping you amplify it because they find value in it, because they love the product. So I think that kind of really brings, brings together a lot of the things you and I have been talking about over the course yes. of this 20 minutes or so. And I mean, the, the other part we've been discussing, right, is you have different tectonic shifts in, you know, how yes. developers work and how also the cloud evolved in a sense. First one, and I'm quoting you there, is virtual machines. Mm -hmm. Second one being, you know, the container concept and Kubernetes, obviously, which came around. Third one, WebAssembly or serverless as a movement. What's mm -hmm. ahead? What's wave four, five, six? And do you even need, you know, another evolution of building cloud native applications uh, and uh, systems, I guess? Yeah, you just triggered the philosopher in me. So uh, I apologize <laughs> in, in, in advance that I'm going to go that way. But and know, I do for believe us, you, wanted, you wanted to become a philosopher, no? I actually I, have a PhD in philosophy. Yeah, there, there I, I was go. a there professor for a brief period of time and went, wow, philosophy moves really slowly and I am not a slow moving person. But also it has so much to tell you about computers, right? Compute Software development is the first time that we have ever realized the concept that we have ever made real the concepts that are in metaphysics, right? So in philosophical metaphysics, you're trying to describe the world, but you're always describing it in plain language and you can never test this, right? You're you're, you're just kind of throwing ideas around. Computer science is about taking ideas of 
this is what my little world should look like, right? It's a shopping cart. There are items and the items go in a shopping cart and you express these as code and then you actually build something. And to me, it's like this, when I was a philosopher looking at this, I'm going, but that's, you know, we're talking about all this stuff in the abstract and here's a way to make it real. And, you know, and, and I think that's what has gotten me excited about what's happening with WebAssembly as as kind of the next wave of cloud is that distributed computing is a really big, hairy problem. And we have, just like AI, you know, it went through its periods of sort of fits and starts where we tried a thing, didn't work, tried another thing, didn't work. Then suddenly, you know, the microservice patterns started to catch on and container orchestration really helped this. And we got, you know, we made some major progress in being able to write stateless microservices that ran in clusters, Right. Uh, WebAssembly for us is an, is the next kind of stepping stone because we want to be able to take these executables and move them just about anywhere. Move them as close to the end user when when latency is important. Move them as close to the data when you're doing a lot of heavy-duty data processing. And this kind of cross-platform, cross-architecture thing that WebAssembly offers was a really good uh, mechanism for that. But the component model then again kind of boosts us up again because now we can start bringing in things from all over the place, right? Cross-language, cross... Language, cross uh, and, and we can secure them in ways that is very friendly to the cloud, where I can assert, not just assert, but guarantee that that personally identifying information is not flowing between component A and component B. Mm. And so in a distributed environment with data privacy as a number one concern for many of us now in the cloud, this is just an absolute boon to the way we want to do development. Now, here's where we're going to... So the, the philosopher Thomas Kuhn used to talk about paradigm shifts is the term he used. And we, yes. we, we talk about that yes. here and there. And, and there's sort of like the... We all kind of have that understanding that at some moment, something happens and then it changes everything, right? Uh, the Copernican revolution is, I believe, the example he uses in that book. Where I, I would not call this a Copernican revolution because it's small in scope compared to that. But it is a kind of revolution here where if we can start breaking down these core assumptions that we have that have just been ingrained in computer science for generations, right, that we cannot, you know, take a C program and a Python program and easily work between the two without having yes. to write lots of bindings and, and this kind of polyglot world. And also this new security model where you can say, yeah, I can assert that even if I'm running somebody's untrusted code here, I can limit what it can do to only these few things. Mm-hmm. That just changes the way we do it. What Kuhn expresses that very few people want to read because it's painful is that anytime you have this kind of sea change, right? Anytime you have a revolution moment, it causes friction, right? It causes you you have this moment where it's really hard to get people to even consider the new model. And that's going to be the big challenge with WebAssembly is how do we get people to even consider this? And some people will be very forward looking and say, whoa, if we're solving a huge problem, yeah, let's jump in. I don't care if the tools are half-baked. I'm going to be one of the person one of the people who finishes the work. You know, uh, you saw this happen in, in physics only a, a century ago, right? People are jumping in going, yeah, this new model does not, fermion, by the way, relates to the fermion uh, in subatomic yes. physics, right? Uh, you know, there, there were these fits and starts where people were going, is this new model offers a lot of promise, but there are a lot of gaps here that the old model explained and the new model doesn't. I want to be one of those people to fill in the gaps. Those people will jump into the component model right away, right? They'll, they'll realize what the huge potential is here. Uh, but there are also the people who are like, uh, I'm going to stick with the old model because it's better for what I'm trying to do today. And so there's going to be this transition point, and it may be months and it may be years and it may be a decade, right, in which people have to kind of do battle with the new concepts. And my hope, and I, I really strongly believe, as you can probably tell, uh, the component model is is the right answer. And we are going to see people want to move on to that, even if it's even if we go through this sort of 
indeterministic period where there's a lot right. of sort of churn as we figure out what the right way is and how to move people across across the across the the divide, right? And I mean the the beauty is that you will also grow another ecosystem, right? Like how yeah. you how you've seen it at the, you know the container concept and the Kubernetes platform and everything, where you had all of the sudden multiple companies being emerged, being venture funded, right? Yeah. Who build tooling and the glue to especially you know put together the holes and build the perfect experience and solve the friction which is in there. Yeah. Where yeah. obviously it won't be only one fermion which is out there, right? It will be multiple uh, big companies, hopefully down the line, riding the wave in a sense. Yeah, and again, that's why doing standards and open source can be really good because you're you're bringing people in, right? You're yes. intentionally bringing people in. You're not trying to plant a flag in the ground and then, then defend it yeah. tooth and nail. You're yeah. trying to collect people together and build something better. Matt, this was fun. Uh, we could go on forever. Um, I think, uh, you know, talk about uh, the next waves, four, five, six, and so on. First, I wanted to uh, express my gratitude having you on this. Uh, it's been amazing. Before I let you run, there's a tradition here at The Craft. Uh, the name tells and speaks for itself, right? You know, what's your de definition of craft in software development? And what's the craft you're most proud of creating? Oh man, you don't ask any easy questions. So my username <laughs> that I use everywhere on online is Technosophos, and it comes from the Greek word techne, uh, which is to apply, you know, which is in Aristotle's philosophy was very much, how do you engage in that sort of artistic practice of something? And that's the way I think of craft. It's sort of like, it requires both creativity and a real artistic streak because you're innovating and that involves bringing in new concepts. And then craft also implies the diligence necessary to just do the hard work to build something. So I like to think of like, uh, you know, sculpting or something like that, where you have to have both, you have to look at a block of stone and say, somewhere hiding inside of there is an eagle. But then you have to do all the work of chipping away everything that is not the right. eagle before you got, I think I was Rodan who said that, until you get to the piece of stone that is, and, and that I think is craft, right? The combination of artistry and, you know, hard work and sweat. <laughs> diligence. That's good. There's a good word for and it, diligence. Yeah. That's, that's a good one. Uh, and what's the, the one you're most proud of? Like, what did you create with this craft? Oh, oh man. I mean, the, the stuff we're building now is the thing that is the most exciting to me, right? And I and it should be that way. And at every step of the way, I think I would tell you that the, the thing I'm most proud of is the thing that I just built. Because to me, and this, I think I, if you asked an artist, I honestly believe every artist would tell you the same thing. To me, every time I build a new project, it is an expression of where I am at and how I to myself have matured over time. Uh, and there's probably far more invested in, say, Helm of me than there was in, say, you know, the, the yes. JavaScript bindings I did for OpenShift or something like that, right? Because every one of those moments is a moment where you reflect and you learn and you apply those learnings and then you build something that, that is at least a better expression of me as a mature software developer or a maturing software developer. So I, that's a non-answer and an answer at the same time. I'll it let is you an figure answer. out whether... <laughs> it is an answer and everyone should be excited about the Spin 2.0 release. Uh, yeah, lots yeah. to build, lots to work on. Thanks so much. This was great uh, having you here on on the craft. Uh, everyone you, is excited yeah. to to follow the journey, I guess, of, of Fermion and you uh, for the third, fourth decade in open source. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again for having me. This has been a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. <laughs>